tapestries. Dear me, the man is dense. This is a castle, isn't it? There are tapestries. This is a castle. And we have many tapestries. And if you are a Scottish lord, then I am Mickey Mouse. Welcome to The Letterboxd Show, a podcast about movies from Letterboxd, the social network for film lovers. Each episode, your host Slim, that's me, and Gemma are joined by a Letterboxd friend to chat about their four favorite films. That is, the four films you choose as your favorites on your Letterboxd profile. As you listen along, we'll have links in the episode notes to the movies, lists, and people we talk about, so there's no excuse not to add these films to your watch list. Today, in a first for the four favorites format, we have two guests who have an overlapping fave. Please say konnichiwa to Jake Cunningham and Michael Leader, the co-hosts of the Sugoi Ghibliotech podcast, which since 2018 has gently walked the lanes and landscapes of Studio Ghibli's films, and they have a delightful new book out based on the podcast. Jake's four letterbox faves are It's a Wonderful Life, Ratatouille, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and My Neighbor Totoro. Michael's four faves are Who Framed Roger Rabbit, North by Northwest, Still Walking, and My Neighbor Totoro. So you can see where we're going here. Today, purely because otherwise we would be here all day, we're going to mainly talk Indy, Roger Rabbit, and Totoro. Jake and Michael, dozo yoroshiku onigaishimasu. Hello. Hello. Oh, wow. What a lovely intro. Slim, when you were talking about our four faves and this being a first, I thought it was the fact that we've got four faves in this very Zoom call. Uh, (laughs) Never been done. (laughs) New favorite guests in the show. We've already supplanted Jonah. Jonah, I'm sorry, you're off the top list. Is this the first podcast in history combining Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Totoro, and The Last Crusade? Has this ever been done, Michael, in the history of audio? I'm, well, I'm sure we can take that mantle if no one else wants to take it before us. This is going to be a very late 80s podcast, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, like I should get the, get, crank up the cure, get out. Oh, my <laughs> what God. What sort of tyre should we put on if we're going back to 88, 89? I have the blue eyeshadow on. I don't know if you can see it. It was all planned from the get-go. I love it. So where do we even start with Hayao Miyazaki's 1988 classic? Tell you what, we'll just... We, don't, we usually drop this in early, uh, sort of around the middle of a chat about a film, but we'll start with Jack's facts because they're pretty impressive. My Neighbor Totoro on Letterboxd is in the top 250 films of all time at number 188. It's the uh, number 12 on the uh, animated highest rated animated films of all time. It's the 30th highest rated Japanese film on Letterboxd. Mm. And uh, it's Miyazaki's second most popular film behind, can you guess? Spirited away. away. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess we start where you started, Michael, because the whole the whole conceit of your podcast is that you're the Ghibli expert and, and Jake was the newcomer to all of these films. So where did it start for you? Oh, I wish I could remember when I first watched Totoro. I suppose my fandom around Ghibli was very much defined by what films were available in the UK in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it took quite a while for most of those films to come out. Um, I talk about this a lot on our podcast, but my first viewing experience was a probably slightly bootleggy 
Princess Mononoke uh, DVD that we got kind of passed around our high school, probably sourced from uh, Chinatown in Manchester. Um, and then everything was based, predicated on Spirited Away, got a theatrical release in the UK. And then slowly after that, Optimum Releasing released DVDs of the film. So it was probably around then as a late teenager, maybe even at university age, that I saw it for the first time and was just entranced. Um, but of course, the best thing about the podcast is introducing Jake to all these films and re sort of revisiting them while we talk through them. I wouldn't, call, this is funny, this is the way that I've sort of slightly um, messed with the top four. Ask me any other day of the week, any, any other Ghibli film could be there. Mm. Um, even Whisper of the Heart, which is the one I'm on record saying is my favourite of Ghibli, Ghibli's films. That's not a Miyazaki and, movie, he only wrote that one. And that's why I like you the most. <laughs> <laughs> but Jake, I think this is the one where we almost say this is the perfect Miyazaki movie. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is the one that has kind of stuck with me the most. I think after like the first watch, maybe not so much. Um, like there were other ones because I was going on this whole odyssey and watching all of them for the first time. And it's kind of this onslaught of crazy imagination and artwork. Um, and so lots of things kind of flitted in and out. Um, like Porco Rosso remains a great favorite of mine in the Miyazaki filmography. Um, but it was over the last 18 months that Totoro kind of secured that top spot for me because I uh, watched it four times over lockdown uh, and considering the kind of the circumstances of everything that the world was going through and considering the kind of the tone and comfort that this film provides, you can imagine why someone might want to watch that four times over a couple of months. <laughs> so I am more like Jake in this view where I grew up, I think Spirited Away I saw maybe 15 years ago. And I actually was not for the first time. And then I tried to show it to my son, I think, because I forgot what I thought about it. My son was way too young for Spirited Away. I was like, man, these movies are crazy. Like I was really new to the whole scene. So listening back to the podcast and hearing Jake's journey, it's very similar to my own. And I only saw Totoro for the first time, I think, within the last year. And that was maybe like my second Ghibli movie altogether. So it's fascinating to me to hear how you're going through like this entire library for the first time. So when you were going through these movies and then Neighbor, did you have like the hype train to worry about by the time you got to these movies? Because at the, I have a bad habit of being like, if a movie's too hyped, I don't want to see it because I'm already like ruined for too <laughs> long. Did you? Worst. It's the worst <laughs> habit. It gets like, uh, it gets influenced. So I'm like, okay, I need to come back to this in like a year. Did you have that problem when eventually you got to Totoro and some of the other films? Luckily, not with Totoro. That lived up to the expectations, but there were certainly a few um, where I kind of expected more from it or didn't quite grasp it the first time around. I suppose the, the two examples out there are one where I have flipped on it, where Princess Mononoke, this is in one of the early episodes of the podcast, mm. so f forgive me, listeners, even though it is, <laughs> it is on record of, of me saying that I, it didn't really work for me. And then in the endless rewatching of these things to write the book. Uh, I, I, I can say that Princess Mononoke does actually work and actually it's really good <laughs> and it's a masterpiece uh, and everything that people say about it is true. Um, but then on the other side of the coin, Howl's Moving Castle, which came after Spirited Away and internationally at the time came with so much hype. And so for me, uh, I already had a baked in knowledge of it. It was maybe like Totoro, Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke and Howl are probably the four that have the biggest kind of international cultural awareness. 
and that just that just didn't work for me the first time watching mm. it. Doesn't work now. <laughs> <laughs> what became more exciting for me in the journey of the podcast was actually the ones I don't that didn't know anything about. Never heard of Whisper of the Heart. Uh, never heard of Only Yesterday. And those are the ones uh, mm. that I absolutely adore. Now, I love the idea of a hype train related to Ghibli because, of course, they love their train sequences. I'm sure it would be a very sort of ethereal, relaxing, sort of mysterious, beautifully rendered train that's very yeah. slowly building up hype across a very quiet scene. No trains in the there's, of course. That, there's like anime fans on the platform just screaming at me whilst I just try and travel off into a lovely gentle void and they want to tell me I'm wrong. So we should probably talk about the movie we're talking about. We can come back and talk about some other Ghibli films soon. But So for anyone, anyone who hasn't yet seen My Neighbour Totoro and... Frankly, given Michael's story about having to, you know, track it down on some dodgy DVD, the kids these days have got HBO Max and Netflix and it's just, it's never been easier. It's never been easier. So for anyone who still hasn't seen it, the the basic story is that two sisters, Suski and May, move to the country with their father uh, because it's closer to the hospital where their mother is convalescing from some mystery illness that she may or may not recover from. And uh, dad has to work full time as as parents do. And so the kids are kind of left to their own devices. And then magic happens. The main thing about Totoro is it's almost, there is a plot, but the plot is sort of besides the point. Would you agree? Yeah, it definitely is a, a film for the vibes rather than the plot. <laughs> And mm-hmm. that's something we won't talk in too much detail about other Miyazaki movies, but he's making this off the back of very swashbuckling adventure type movies, Naushka the Valley of the Wind and Castle in the Sky. And he wanted to pair this back to be a story for kids and to focus on, in his words, the things we don't see, the things we miss. And so focuses in on these small moments, like a really early highlight about when they move into their house, which is a strange Western style house in the middle of the Japanese countryside. And they're just opening up all the doors, all of the dust and the dust bunnies are there in the corner of the frame as they're running around, going upstairs, thinking you may be haunted, cleaning the floors, just these wonderful, beautiful domestic moments. So yes, a good chunk of this is plotless. Although we talk about revisiting this movie, this is one where, of course, it's quite um, infamous in the world of Letterboxd, but our friend David Jenkins' review of this, where he lists all of the things, all of the sort of screenwriting 101, filmmaking 101 aspects that are not in this film. There's no villain. Oh my God. Yeah. Should we go Should we go there? I've got it open now. Who wants to read it? I'd have it open. If you want to read it, go ahead, Gemma. <laughs> oh, okay. So here we go. David Jenkins' Little White Lies, once again, um, the most popular review of, of Totoro on Letterboxd. No plot, no central character, no antagonist. No defined purpose for side characters. No threat. No three acts. No jokes. No punchlines. No explanations. No internal references. No catchphrases. No polemical voice. No melodrama. No lessons. No beginning. No end. One of the best films ever made. Which is an amazing letterboxed review. I, I, and, uh, you know, all credit to David. I once had a very long argument with him on stage um, <laughs> after, a, after a screening of a Ghibli movie where he sort of mounted that argument. And I think there is, you can query a few of them. And I, one I would query is um, this sort of sense of a lack of 
some people sort of say a lack of sort of stakes or threats in a film like this. Watch it with a 18 month old kid and Totoro okay. is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Watch it with a five year old kid, you know, who, who first saw it at about two years old yeah. and, and Totoro is going to save the day along with the cat bus. It's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't matter that May has gone missing because cat bus is going to fix it all. It's mm-hmm. so it's so lovely how children can access this film at any age, and I just mm-hmm. I mentioned bicycling, but that it, my son and I have this daily magic related to Totoro, and I, I I swear this is true. When we ride up, so we're bicycle kids. When we when we go on our daily commute, we go up this path that's painted like a rainbow, been painted oh. like a rainbow by the city because it's just right at the part of the bike path where you crest the hill and you look out to the west, so you get these rainbows and sunsets on your way home. It's incredible. And then just past there, there's a run of um, sweet gum trees. And so pretty much almost year round, there's a scattering of sweet gum balls on the ground. And as we ride past, my son goes, soot sprites, watch out for the soot sprites, mum. Watch out for the soot sprites. (laughs) Because I don't know if you know, have you seen sweet gum balls? They're the ones like, just look on Pinterest. They're all over Pinterest. There's there's kids who have taken sweet gum balls, painted them black and put eyes on them. And they are, I swear, they are the living embodiment of soot sprites, of dust bunnies. It's amazing. Anyway. New, we need to move to New Zealand. You just live in paradise, Gemma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a bit different around where we are. <laughs> but one of the main things that jumped out at me on my viewing was the voice acting in the American dub. So I am still, have only seen of the few that I have seen, the American dubbing and Dakota Fanning and her sister play the two leads and I was blown away by their performance in this movie. I feel like I'm spoiled, not like spoiled in a bad way of like modern, you know, voice acting today. They get the stars. They get like Chris Pratt in, you know, the Disney movies. And this movie back then, I feel like they're really putting the oomph in voice acting. Jake, did you have any thoughts when you first saw this movie and on rewatches too? Well, so I, I, the first time when we were doing the podcast and I was doing everything uh, for, the, for the first time, I watched them all subtitled. Um, mm. And as, as I've gone further into the world of Ghibli and all, all, all of the surrounding conversations around dubbing and subbing, I like watch, watching with the dubs is equally fine. And I've watched them uh, with the dubs as well. And I think there's, there's a period where they they shift so the version that you're seeing there is not the first version of the dub and so there would have been a an original english well as as we would be told to say from right. the ghibli team we want to say an english language version not a dub version um there was a, a version which i've never seen which was the buena vista version of totoro uh which i would love to encounter but i really love that um, Dakota Fanning one I think their performances are really good and they get to some of the charm and kind of unhinged energy that is in May and Satsuke because they're not kind of sweet gumdrop little sister uh, kind of all a bit too saccharine like they they screech mm. and scream and that's something yeah. that I really love about those vocal performances in in both versions of it
Well, so you mentioned the dub of the English language and the different versions, but Michael, what what is your view on, you know, you've seen them all, you have a deep history with these films. What's your preference when you rewatch? Do you prefer the English language? Do you prefer the subtitle? Does it does it matter to you guys when you watch? Oh, wow. We'll go in there. Uh, that's a big can of worms to open slim. So um, I'm actually quite open to this, particularly with something like Ghibli, where they're very in- involved in the process of creating international versions, particularly the English language one. So when we went out to Japan, we went into Jeffrey Wexler, who was for a long time their head of international, and then moved on to Studio Ponoc afterwards, who made Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is very much a riff on Ghibli, made by former Ghibli staff members. Um, and he, as Jake said, he doesn't like the word dub. He likes to call them English language versions because they're made in parallel. They are mm. overseen by the studio. It's not if there's a there's a sort of tendency to view it almost as the evil American distributors or the even evil Western distributors grabbing the films and rewriting it and re uh, cutting it or putting this dub together that's not in the spirit of the original with the original in, uh, artist's intentions. But Ghibli from the two thousands onwards were very involved in the way that their films were uh, localized internationally. There's a really great book that was released by um, Steve Alpert, who was their first international, their first gaijin um, hire, first Western that worked for Ghibli, and he was hired with the view of selling Ghibli to the world and to America in particular. And there's lots of great stuff, details in there about those first deals with Disney and Buena Vista in the States and how the things they would just do naturally, changing the soundtrack and how he'd have to go over and watch it in a preview screening with the Mm -hmm. engineers saying, you've added in extra footsteps and rustling and these little musical bits here. Why are you doing all that? And make them adhere to their contract. But I think these films are for families. They're for various audiences. And if you're screening it to a preschool kids who maybe can't read subtitles or rather not, the, the, dub, the dubbed versions are pretty terrific. They are also, if you really want to go all out in the um, cinephile realm, the uh, Toshiro is a sort of film you could watch not understanding the language at all. It's just so powerful mm. in its visual storytelling, like another filmmaker we might talk about shortly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so really, it's, um, it's, it's one that I can go either way on, but it's something that a lot of people are very, um, very opinionated on. When I used to work for Film 4, which was the UK broadcaster in, uh, that, that had Ghibli's films under licence and they'd show them during school holidays during the day for kids, um, we'd get a lot of complaints saying why you're showing them in the English language version not the subtitled one. It's because it's for five-year-olds, some of these films yeah. at the end of the day. One of the things I also love so much about this story is it's something we don't get to see. I mean, we're talking about 80s you know, movies and... There's the 80s in general have such a, a great output of films about kids just going into the wild. I mean, I'm thinking about Stand By Me, I'm thinking about Goonies, whatever. And um, and this is one of those where the dad is, he's working, sometimes he's working at home, sometimes he's taking the bus to the city. He's just trying to get on with his job of being a professor of something. And the children are left to their own devices, which we don't see enough in films anymore. And it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Or were you okay with it, Slim? As a parent? God, the idea that like, well, first of all, if my I, if my son had waited for me to give me an umbrella after work, I'd probably cry tears of joy. <laughs> but I mean, they were standing out there in the rain. I was like sweating. I was like, oh my God. If my wife found out that my son was just walking around waiting by the bus, <laughs> it's like a different world. And I think that lends to the kind of magical nature 
of this freewheeling plot where, yeah, this is fun. This is, I don't need to care about any of the other junk. You know, it's just, they're just enjoying life in the fields. They're having fun with Totoro, waiting in the rain. I think you called out the umbrella scene, the ASMR of the audio of the mm. rain <laughs> gem. I I, yeah, I put that in the notes purely so that we get it in the edit. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> At so some right point, now, we'll get that audio. We're all going to pause and yeah. listen to those raindrops. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> my my last thought is probably the first thing I, I thought of when I saw this movie is the animation. For anyone that is not, you know, like maybe if you're a noob like I was last year or Jake was a few years ago, that haven't taken in these movies and you've only really had the experience of like Disney and DreamWorks. But these this animation in these movies is going to blow your mind. Just the animation of these two running blew me away <laughs> when I first saw this movie. And then the youngest sister, you know, when she was first scared, when she saw the, the sprites and her hands, her fingers are moving, grabbing her chest. Like, it's just these crazy little things that, you know, you grow up, you hear everyone talk about these movies. Like, oh, you gotta see these movies, you gotta see these movies. But you do, you do need to see these movies. And I think that's hard to kind of convey in a long-term sense, but you guys do very well with that on the podcast. I was listening to it all week. I went back to the beginning, even though Jake was sweating with some of his earlier opinions on those earlier episodes. <laughs> but it does come through. And when you were doing this podcast, did you guys worry about the trepidation of how to talk about these storied movies? And Michael, I mean, you have a, a thick love for these movies. Did you worry about that? Having that audience, like I need to take care with bringing people into the fold for these movies. Yes and no. I think these are fundamentally very accessible movies. There are some deeper cuts, you know, like Jake mentioned, like only yesterday, which require quite a, you know, proper context around them. But it's a it's a world where, at least in the UK, they're they they are pitched very you know very well as very accessible films. You can just go down and buy from wherever your DVD you buy DVDs. It's not really framed as these enshrined world cinema classics. We don't really have that tradition here. Maybe in the States where there is quite a um, a, a tradition of a fandom around anime that can be very protective of how these things are talked about. Um, it might, might be different or likewise elsewhere in the world where there is more of a, um, you know, you go to Italy or France or places in uh, continental Europe and these films and the TV shows that Ghibli's um, animators worked on in the 70s would be on TV and there'd be a whole other discourse around it. So really the, th the thinking behind the podcast is most people in the UK, unless you're quite hardened cinephiles, but we approached it um, as if the film four audience of just this broad everyday TV film viewers who maybe have heard of one or two of these films that never gone deeper. We had that person in mind and Jake and I are on this seesaw where I may have all of that knowledge that comes with being an anime nerd, but Jake has the frame of reference. You know, Jake has watched lots of films in his life. He's a film <laughs> critic, film podcaster, but hasn't watched much anime, hasn't watched necessarily much animation. So he's bringing a very different um, frame of reference and we sort of checked each other in that sense you're so close to saying and, and Jake's basic <laughs> <laughs> well I just I, I'm going to 
<laughs> uh, something that might be uh, controversial, but bear with me. Uh, not so Uh-oh. much basic, but so the Ghibliotech pod focuses on, uh, you know, the films of Studio Ghibli, a, a, a great Japanese animation house. But also you've you've looked into the works of Satoshi Kon. You've also done a, um, to my extreme joy, uh, expanded sideways into the cartoon Salooniverse, um, a deeply popular move in my personal household. But these are all animation houses that, that, that exist in countries with their own cultures and legends and mythology. And you're, I mean, you know, there's no other way to put it. You're, you're white English colonizers. <laughs> Have you ever brought that into your thinking about how you approach your podcast talking about other cultures? Art? I will say that very, very shortly, Jake will be an Irish uh, citizen. <laughs> Passports in the post, right? So that's why we can talk about Cartoon Saloon. <laughs> yeah. Paperwork is in the mail. I, I'm just interested to know if you've put thought into it. We we absolutely have, and that's why we've always placed our our views as purely subjective, but also in a continuum of other um, readings and discussions and debates. So the framing of each episode of the podcast is: I do this sense of context and history, part of which will be will involve international reception, various ways these films have been read. And then very much the, the the review section is Jake coming to this as somebody who was brought up on Disney films or Steven Spielberg movies, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. And we often make those references. And we've always used every opportunity we can to broaden that conversation with the understanding that the, the, the core voices are ours. So we have these mini-series in between the film-based or filmography-based miniseries where we have interviews with filmmakers, animators, writers, artists who are also inspired by or influenced by Ghibli. And as part of that, we've spoken with, gosh, from uh, director of Luca Enrico Casarossa, who can bring that Italian point of view, or um, Rebecca Sugar Domi Shi, who can bring the North American point of view. We've also spoken with people from Ghibli bringing that Japanese point of view. So we've tried to do that as much as we can, whilst also being very honest about the limits of our own perceptions. The the one call out I was listening to a recent episode talk about me admitting that I'm a basic basic boy, I'll say. We're we're the basic boys. You're we basic. are the basic. <laughs> we, we can own it. I'm standing in solidarity. There was at one point in an episode where we were talking about a background artist, like this beautiful background. And I think Michael, you're like, actually this wasn't the normal background artist. This was done by X, Y, and Z. And I thought to a recent podcast episode that I was on where I called an answering machine a voicemail machine on the show. I couldn't think of the word answering machine. And that's the first thing I thought of while listening to the Ghibliotech. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm learning. It's, it's good. I appreciate this. We do need to move on, but I'd love to just finish up with a few other gorgeous letterbox takes for anyone who's still inconceivably on the fence about giving Totoro a first time watch. Um, and I think my favorite is uh, the wonderful Willow McClay writing, I know that human beings are capable of being all right because our species somehow made my neighbor Totoro. Surely that counts for something in the great balancing of the scales. I love it. And then <laughs> Alia writes, don't take my word for it, but I have a feeling that this was the film that invented magic. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. And finally, this astute and, and, and very deep gorgeous comment from Brendan. I loved Totoro so much that by the end of the movie, I'd lost all desire to eat him. <laughs> well, that's a very good point, actually. That yep. One thing we did do in Tokyo was we did eat what? Totoro. 
Is it like a yeah. cake or something? What was it? The Shirohiga Cream Puff Factory does oh a cream puff in the shape of Totoro. And they do four flavors, uh, three regulars, which are the hazelnut, vanilla, and chocolate, and then a guest flavor, which at the time we were there was a strawberry cheesecake. Oh, oh shut <laughs> up. Oh, my God. Speaking of eating animals, it's time to um, get out the rabbit dip. And uh, <laughs> move. Thank you. Very Thank good. you. <laughs> Been working all, on that all night. All timer. All timer segue. This is Robert Zemeckis, 3.9 average on Letterboxd. This is Michael's fave. Toonstar Roger is worried that his wife Jessica is playing patty cake with somebody else. So the studio hires detective Eddie Valiant to snoop on her. But the stakes are quickly raised when Marvin Acme is found dead and Roger is the prime suspect. Just for me, this movie scarred me as a child with the steamroller scene. But Michael, what was your first experience with Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Probably very similar to you, Slim. This was one of the earliest films I can remember watching. I think at the cinema as well. My parents took me very, when I was very young, to the cinema. And I remember seeing this and Ghostbusters 2. Um, both which oh, scarred man. me. Um, Prince Vigo, <laughs> the portrait in <laughs> Ghostbusters yeah. 2. Oh my god! And then, yeah, Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I must have been three when this film came out in the UK. So, I, to trying to think that I, I have a three-year-old now and I wouldn't show him this film. Uh, so what, what a different time <laughs> the 80s were <laughs> to now. Yeah. I, but, tried, I tried showing my five-year-old this film and we got 20 minutes in and he was just like, I'm bored. You know what, and I, I think it was just the whole noir thing. I ha- I'm not surprised. This is the reason why I love this film, it's not just pure nostalgia, uh, as well as the memory of watching it when I was little. It is just the fact that I've revisited this every, you know, when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, and re-watch it now quite often. And I just find something new every time. And now I watch it like... We watch many 80s movies that were marketed towards families um, as an adult movie. Like Ghostbusters is a movie for adults, mm-hmm. Gremlins is a movie for adults, but for some reason in the 80s we thought that they were family movies that kids could watch as well. And Who that's Framed what... Roger Rabbit is a movie for um, for for people who like uh, a hirsute shirtless Bob Hoskins. <laughs> who doesn't? Just... <laughs> oh my God, the thirst... He's the most agile big man I've ever seen. He could run a six-minute mile (laughs) if he really needed to. He is so quick and so mobile. blows my mind. I was fanning myself through most of this film, man, this time around. And I just sort of realized that I guess the first time I saw it, yeah. You you know how there are films that kind of determine your sexuality? (laughs) 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 My sexuality is Bob Hoskins and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's so fascinating, Gemma, because so many people would would say that this film define their sexuality because of Jessica Rabbit. You're the only one saying Bob Hoskins. Uh, There I was with my Christopher Lloyd calendar. (laughs) (laughs) When I put this on, amazingly, this is in 4K on the Disney Plus app in the States. I didn't even know there was a 4K release of this movie. It does feel like a really adult movie and it's it's wild to look back and, you know, you're right. This is like a total kids movie promoted film. And it's also wild to see all these characters in the same movie. You know, Warner Brothers, Disney characters side by side. You know, it's like I'm moving my glasses up and down. Like, am I seeing this right now in 2021? And there's there's a, there's a crazy balance between all of the characters that all of the Warner Brothers and Disney characters have to be on screen for the same amount of time and have the exact same number of time, lines as well. It's absolutely like the logistics to put this together from a technical perspective was obviously insane, but just from a legal perspective as well. Yeah. And like, yeah. Zemeckis is churning out like, 
one big hit a year at this point as well. Like just, the man was a machine at this point. But mm. this film doesn't at any point come across like a sort of shameless IP dump in the way that, say, Space Jam 2 or something <laughs> yeah. like Free Guy this year did. And uh, those two films back to, seeing those two big movies back to back where it just feels like they're just throwing whatever toys they have access to into a film just to try and make the audience feel something really upset me uh, because a film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit was so delightful because they've moved these legal mountains, licensing mountains to get all these characters together, not to just say, oh, look, it's this cameo, that cameo, this cameo. It's to be in tribute to the art form of the short form animated film from the 1930s to the 50s that by that point was a throwback. It's quite easy to forget that now because that film is just right up on the cusp of the renaissance of the Disney and all the other American animation that happened in the 90s. So, mm. it, And also, you can watch this film in a way that the best Muppet movies could work if the Muppets were played by human beings. This is about cartoons, but really the cameos aren't that important. The main, you know, the main character, Roger Rabbit, and a lot of the other main characters are original creations. It doesn't rely on those cameos to, to work. Well, the, 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 the sincerity and how straight the Bob Hoskins performance is is so key to that believability. Because if this was being made now, if they were rebooting... Who framed Roger Rabbit? And obviously Ryan Reynolds is going to get cast to be the detective character. And constantly he's looking into camera and saying like, oh, that's so crazy. And he knows that he's in a noir. Um, uh-huh. And But because Hoskins like absolutely like just is so focused on playing that straight man character so, so well. And he lets the cartoons be cartoons and you believe him more and you believe the cartoons more. And amazingly, compared to all the other actors in the film, he is the best one at acting with things that aren't there as well. Like all of his eyeline oh stuff God. is amazing. Mm. It's I, I, it's a wizard. The whole scene in his office uh, when the weasels come to 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 find Roger Rabbit, but from the whole the Murphy bed coming down and Roger's there, that entire sequence and how he played like there's not a moment where you don't believe that Roger Rabbit mm. is a is a, is a living tune rabbit in this office with him in the in the sink with the dishes. It's such an incredible sequence. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, this is Zemeckis at the height of his powers, working with his favourite cinematographer, his favourite animation director, his favourite production designer, his favourite editor. It's, oh my God. The 80s banged, man. Can we get the 80s <laughs> movies back? <laughs> but I, I really think that also you look at this and it feels like we just got this. I mean, of course, there are many other great films from the 80s. But this one really feels special to me because of so much of the serendipity and uniqueness around it. Bob Hoskins was not their first choice. They'd want someone like Bill Murray to be in this film. And Bill Murray would be a bit too ironic and knowing. Bob Hoskins, Mm. this is the fulcrum point of his career where beforehand he's in, God, you know, Mona Lisa, Long Good Friday, Pennies from Heaven. That's why he can commit to this sort of role because he has this, you know, he, he has played crime dramas in the past. Yet he does have this, as you say, Slim, um, physical physicality to him that he can bring as well as a a great sympathy empathy you can play that you can really oh God, attach like with the, him. The, the, the moment between him and betty boop yeah oh that, that hoskins in that moment it's incredible Betty, long time no see what are you doing here work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color but i still got it eddie yeah, you still got it. Um, and he never really gets it again because he, he's in Hook and 
Super Mario Brothers. And it doesn't really have another moment like this. And it's once again back to sort of independent British cinema that he shines after this. Um, So it really feels like we got away with this one looking back Mm. in in history. Yeah. There's something else amazing in the history of kind of animation, live action, going all the way back to the... 20s and 30s and the Fleischer brothers, there's, they've, they've always played with the concept of the animator themselves putting themselves in the picture, playing with their characters, like Betty Boop, for example. Mm. What I love about Roger Rabbit is that you never see the hand of the animator. And it's almost as if animators, like the animation is so extraordinary, but also because the animators have truly taken a, a back seat to the, to the point that is there anything more terrifying than a giant machine full of turpentine heading to wipe out the world's most beloved and iconic cartoon characters. And this sort of this sort of idea that they will never come back because, because animators don't exist in this world. It's so trippy. And that speaks to how um, it doesn't have that ironic detachment. It doesn't need to nod to, um, yeah, these characters aren't real really. Even in that Muppets way of how the Muppets would play with, you know, whether they're real or not, it, it, it is fully dedicated to these are magical characters and we, we should celebrate them. And that's mm. what that effect is. It, it makes me well up that final scene when they're all together. And it really is just how cool that as, you know, there was this point in history where all these amazing characters were created to cheer us up during times of depression and war and everything that comes with it. And Porky Pig has never been less annoying We should move to our final fave, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, 1989. We're still in the 80s. Thank God. Steven Spielberg, average rating 4.0. This is Jake's fave. When Dr. Henry Jones Sr. suddenly goes missing while pursuing the Holy Grail, eminent archaeologist Indiana must team up with his friends to follow his father's footsteps and stop the Nazis from recovering the power of eternal life. Jake, where were you when you first saw this movie? Do you have a, do you have a deep memory of that first viewing? Oh, probably sat on the floor in front of my TV about two feet away from it. Um, <laughs> I would just, just watch this all the time. I didn't actually, funnily enough, I didn't have it on video, um, but Michael can attest to the fact that in the 90s, all the way up till now, uh, this film and the Indiana Jones series is shown on BBC all the time, like Easter holidays, summer holidays, Christmas. Uh, so I'm probably watching this, I would say, four times a year from the point that I'm six to now. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'll gladly do it every time. It's, uh, it's just such a joy. Yeah, you know, it's one of the best mm. films ever. I, I love it so much. Um, and But it's one of those things that's kind of been with me for so long that I never really thought about it as being a favourite or being great because it's just always been there. It's um, such a staple and it's only maybe in the last five or so years that I've come to consider it as being such a kind of key text for me and, um, and as just being a great work of art. I think it's astonishing. I love it. Having said that, I have a question Uh-oh. for you. Oh, God. Jake, this is your fave, but it's curiously not in your Spielberg ranked list on Letterboxd. <gasps> is that an oh, oversight? Yeah, so, no, so if you if you check the description of the Spielberg ranked, it's uh, added <laughs> as I watch. 
Uh, so there's a little, there's a, I mean, it's already there, Gemma. I knew you'd be lucky. Um, <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I think like num- number one on there is Catch Me If You Can at the moment, which oh, I, I yeah. know is a pretty controversial co- choice as well. Because there's some pretty big films out there, but Catch Me If You Can is core. Is that the greatest Christmas movie of all time? Yeah, why not? Let's say it, Slim. Let's do it. We're the basic boys. We're coming in. We're, we saying, We're already you know going to get negative comments <laughs> for the for when I said dub versus English language version. I've already been canceled in the chat in comments. So why not I mean, go I, further? I do. I, we, we already mentioned earlier that one of my faves is It's a Wonderful Life. So I don't think that I can. <laughs> don't backtrack. Don't leave me in the lurch right now. I need support here. Yeah. So when, when Last Crusade... Uh, is is watched because I'm I'm doing the rewatch as in the build up to West Side Story, so that all that list will be completed by the mm. end of the year. So this is uh, again Spielberg and, and Lucas, by the way, because don't forget that George Lucas co-wrote, produced, and co-edited this film. It's pretty exciting. So they're you oh know God. height of their powers, third Indiana Jones movie. So at this point they can do anything, and so what they do is they get James Bond to come in and play Indy's dad. And then they get the the biggest star, like young star of the time, the dear departed River Phoenix, to come in and play young Indy. I mean, these are some bonkers, wonderful casting decisions in 1989. Like, nobody should be in any doubt about that. And what I realised on this watch was that it's the perfect, because when I saw the first indie film at whatever age I was, I mean, horrifying, terrifying, also also helped establish my sexuality, by the way, but uh, <laughs> horrifying. But this is Last Crusade is the perfect gateway Indiana Jones film for younger kids. So yep. the five-year-old was into it, man, because it starts with the whole young indie caper. It's such a great opening. Can we talk about how great this opening is? Oh, God. it's. I mean, when you think about it, Last Crusade is the best prequel and sequel of all time. Take that, Godfather 2. Um, but it's true. <laughs> but, like, that opening sequence is amazing. And, like, the action of it. Like, we've we've mentioned, Michael, you teased about, like, directors who are just so good at kind of momentum, movement, guiding you through the screen, through the story, with almost silently. That is, like, so much of what Indiana Jones is about. And, like, that opening train sequence combined then with Michael Kahn doing the cut as the hat goes on young Indy's head to old it. Come on, come on. So, so good. Gemma, I think like what you're saying about this one working for young kids is absolutely correct. And I think that's why like, if I'd not seen any of these films and then I watched Raiders when I was 16 or something, maybe that would be the one that is my favourite. But you've got that opening where you can imagine yourself in this this character. But also like there are so many kind of more so than the others, like a puzzle treasure hunt feeling to this film. Like X marks the spot, that moment like when it cuts to the wide oh. shot of the library and you look down, so good. Um, and Jehovah begins with an eye. Uh, like, <laughs> just, he, he, there was, Iconic. Um, there, was, there was a kid's TV show in, um, in the UK called Jungle Run, uh, which was a, a game show which was very much inspired by Indiana Jones. And it was, uh, you had these different tasks where you would have to tread on certain tiles or move a, move a, a ball from here to here. And, it was very much like kind of what I imagined like being in an Indiana Jones film was like, it was so cool. I just wanted to be in it so much because you just feel like you can play the film. Michael, where does the, where does last crusade place on your Spielberg list? 
so very high as well. So I'm a bit older than Jake and I, I saw Roger Rabbit at the cinema. So this is a very similar year, very similar age. I have a very strong memory of the poster for Last Crusade being at my local kind of two screen cinema in the town I grew up in. I didn't see it at that point. My traumatic Indiana Jones memory was, and this is Gemma speaks to your sort of which is the best gateway indie film. I'd say Temple of Doom is not the best gateway indie film, not just for the racism, but for the fact that if you're a kid, you have your surrogate with Short Round, and then Short Round is betrayed by Indy in the moment where he may be possessed mm -hmm. by Kalimar. And uh, that's the moment where you're like, why is my sort of older brother dad going to kill me? Uh, and that's a vaguely traumatising moment for me as a young cinema viewer. But like Jake, re-watching this over and over again, and it is... All of these grace notes we've been talking about, the script, of course, you know, Tom Stoppard very famously says he did a bit of a polish on this. And so we um, credit him with all the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the, 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 the benefit of being the, uh, the, the script doctor. Um, so the other one, you know, um, I forgot my Charlemagne. This one leans into the cartoonishness a bit more, I feel, certainly than Temple of Doom, which is almost too dark, and then Raiders, which probably is kind of like straight down the middle. You know, The idea of having um, you know, Henry Senior with his mm -hmm. umbrella using birds to fell a Nazi uh, that's, that's going to kill them um, is, is quite preposterous, but it's played so well by Sean Connery. The thing that I always like to talk about with this is, you know, we always love age discourse, you know, film Twitter loves an age discourse uh, uh, argument. How how much older is Sean Connery than Harrison Ford? He's like 15 years older. <laughs> yeah, it's not a lot. <laughs> but at this stage in his career, Sean Connery, you know, Harrison Ford, everyone forgets that Harrison Ford was already in his 30s before he even played, before he even played Han Solo. I think he's like 30 in American mm. Graffiti. So all of these iconic roles for Harrison Ford, he was like a 40-year-old man in the 80s. Um, and But Sean Connery, not blessed with a full head of hair, sadly, <laughs> uh, beyond his Bond years. <laughs> but I'm cool. All that suggests to me is that um, Henry Jones Senior had a thing for older women, and that's that's good. That's fine with me. <laughs> is Henry Jones Senior a Delph drama? He has his own sort of topless moment later in the scene, where, like in the film, where he gets shot and they pour the oh, yeah. Grail on there. Oh yeah. I think Sean Connery yeah. has a has a sort of silvery quality to if him. If Bob Hoskins oh and Sean Connery appeared in a movie shirtless together, running down the beach, Gemma would pass out instantly. No words. No words. <laughs> there are some great lists that this film appears on on Letterboxd and um, one of them is a it's, it is a truly iconic list if you are a fan of Harrison Ford Harrison Ford films ranked by how much he wants you to get off his plane <laughs> beautiful Harrison Ford trope <laughs> hit 80 I don't even know if I should say this one hit 80s movies that should be remade with all female casts in order to fuck with cine bros. And then, um, and then beautiful, beautiful list. Um, I've actually, uh, as of a few podcast episodes ago, started keeping it. It's private at the moment, but I will, I will launch it soon. A, a list of, um, maggots in movies, but oh the, uh, it, it will be a partner to this list, which is the cinematic universe. And oh my God, the rats. The Rats and Last Crusade. What a title oh. for that list. I'm never going to click on that list, but the title's amazing. Oh, man. <laughs> two, two, two of my faves are rat films. Ah, oh, true. Oh, true. You need to dive deep on that. <laughs> and yeah, I've never seen rat film, the, the film. I'm just looking at the poster for rat film and I will never see rat film. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh.
Jake, have you ever seen the Young Indiana Jones episode that Harrison Ford was in? No, I never have. I've always I've always avoided the TV show. It kind of scares me a bit. <laughs> they're they're long. There 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 was for those that don't know, there was a TV series that Lucas put together, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. So it follows uh, a young I can't remember the actor who plays the lead, but they're like TV movies. They're like an hour and a half, and the one that Harrison Harrison Ford appeared in one episode doing bookends where he had a little storyline that started the episode and closed the episode. He has a beard because he was filming The Fugitive at the time. So it's just this insane cameo. It's like a TV version of Indiana Jones. It's in the winter. He's driving a truck through snow. So it's on YouTube. So by all means, check this out. What's even crazier is that the original series had a book bookend for every episode with an elderly Indiana Jones. And that also is on YouTube. If you want to have your mind blown right now, <laughs> go to YouTube and look for these episodes because you're not ready if you're an Ian Jones like, fan. The, all of the untold stories that are even just in the design of that character, like he has an eye patch. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, this is what annoys me about all your aforementioned cine bros. Uh, getting all hissy about casting and like, they can't play Indiana Jones. How many people have played Indiana Jones? He's not Harrison <laughs> Ford. Like, yeah. It's fine. Like You're allowed to do this. We should talk about the book. We ha- I'm not sure if we've talked about the Ghibliotech book, the unofficial guide to the movies of Studio Ghibli. It's out now. How does it feel yeah. to start a podcast and then have a book in bookshops? That's not the normal trajectory for podcasters, in my experience. <laughs> no, it, it is bizarre. We work for a, a digital agency, which is where all of our stuff is, exists out there in the interwebs. And so we come in and say, can we publish a book? And uh, they were like, what's a book? Is it like a thing that you can read on your phone? <laughs> no, it's it's really cool. I mean, for me personally, um, growing up reading, you know, the 90s was a great time for very accessible film books. Favor putting out not only books of criticism, but like you would buy Coen Brothers and Quentin Tarantino screenplays um, and, and have that in your bookcase as a budding film fan or a film bro, if you want to say, that, you know, go that way. Um and then reading in preparation for the podcast, all these amazing books on anime and Ghibli, people who come before us, you know, Andrew Osman, Helen McCarthy, Susan Napier, some amazing anime experts. And then finding a space within that bookshelf for something by us is absolutely wild because you know, both Jake and I do write prose. We write reviews for places. Um, but the idea of writing a book, because we thought we were podcast guys, we thought we were shoot, you know, pigeonholed into that forever. But no, now we are published authors. We're essentially like contemporaries of Tom Stoppard now. Oh God, <laughs> your partners, you must be insufferable. Uh, they're sick of us now. Michael, my, we both actually got kicked out. We're actually living in the same house now. Uh, it's just me and Michael living together. Our partners live together now. We're in, we're in, we're, we're in opposite rooms, right? No, I was really excited because I looked up uh, the book to, you know, put an Amazon link into our episode notes. And the first thing that came up for me was all of my local bookshops here in New Zealand with your book on it and, you know, mm. the ability to pre-order. So this is big and it's, it's it's going far and wide. And I guess there are already a lot of books about the Studio Ghibli universe out there, including by Miyazaki-san himself. So... How do you hope that people will come to yours and, and, and choose yours and amongst the others? Gemma, it's interesting that you say that there's lots of books about Ghibli. 
but there's there's actually more just lots of books about Hayao Miyazaki or there's uh, one or two books about Isao Takahata uh, and there's books about the individual films but what we've done here is we've written a book that's about all of Ghibli's films uh, so that we can and we have given as many words to whisper of the heart as we have spirited away because we can. Uh, And so we, what we wanted this to be like the kind of very much gates open, come on in. We love this thing. We want you to love it. Uh, And like, if you want to start and follow chronologically, then do so. Or if you just want to grab a chapter of the one that you've just watched, you can do so as well. And we, we want it to be that, that welcoming, encouraging thing. Uh, for all of the films, not just the ones that you might have heard of or might have won an Oscar. Oh my God, I just laid out the red carpet for that answer. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. If I had a book, I would probably be like walking into bookstores with friends. Like, let me just walk in. I got to check, I got to check something out. But like, oh, look at this whole thing (laughs) on over here. What's this we, doing we, we here? We definitely didn't do that last week. We d- absolutely didn't <laughs> take an afternoon off to do that exact thing. <laughs> just start signing <laughs> copies until an employee comes up and asks what the hell you're doing. Don't worry, I wrote this. Well, the, the, there's the author, Neil Gaiman, who I'm a big fan of, who does that whenever he's in an airport or something. He just kind of like wanders over to the pile of his books and starts signing them. And, yeah, I don't think we're at his level yet. I don't think we'll get away with it. You should just start signing the Sandman graphic novels for no reason in the comic shops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I just say that I'm very proud to to call Neil uh, a somewhat neighbour at the moment, being that he's yeah. he's been uh, sheltering in in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, excuse me. I just want to uh, sidestep here and ask a, a question, which is not on any of our notes, so Slim has no idea what's coming. But um, particularly for those of you with young children, uh, how excited are we for the Puffin Rock feature film? From the cartoon saloon. So, so Gemma, I don't know if if, if this is um, speaks to your experience at all. But now there's been the great splintering in our household, where he's now three, Ivo, our son, and he now will watch nothing but Hey Dougie. There was a phase where it'd be a bit of Hey Dougie, a bit of Bluey, oh, Bluey. a bit of something else. Oh, but now it's like he will heckle us if it's anything other than Hey Dougie. However, Puffin Rock is one that I will happily watch. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that movie, definitely. Oh we'll have God. to do a special episode about it. It's just <laughs> devastating when they move off a show that is is that you love and that is also so um, pleasing in an audio sense. Like, I just... Honestly, that when 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 my one started watching any screens at all, I just I spent a month just searching for the nicest sounding and most beautifully uh, rendered, you know, drawn most beautifully drawn series. And so, yeah, we ended with um, Puffin Rock, Sarah and Duck, so good. Yes, Kitty and Lou, which is a, a claymation series out of New Zealand with Jermaine Clement as one of the voices. What was the other one? Bluey, of course. Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, Twin Peaks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bluey in the last year has taken over the UK. Like if they finally started putting it on CBBS, but I guess it's an institution over in Australia and New Zealand. Oh my god! So so Duncan Jones watches it with his kids. Guy Pearce watches it with his son. Like Bluey, the the Bluey love amongst the celeb, you know, old dads of young children is insane right now. We need a Bluey feature film. I've been hearing, I've heard about this show Bluey more in the last year than I ever have. I have a few friends that are talking about that have young kids. Like, are you watching this Bluey show? It's really good. I have no idea what the heck they're talking about. Puffin Rock, I've never even heard of until this oh, exact moment. I just had to Google <laughs> on my laptop while you said that to make me sound somewhat intelligent. So happy that you guys can all watch that and I can just go and watch my filth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to The Letterbox Show. And thanks to our guests this episode, Michael Leader and Jake Cunningham. You can listen to the Ghibliotech podcast on Spotify and wherever good podcasts live. And the book, Ghibliotech, the unofficial guide to the movies of Studio Ghibli is out now. You can follow Slim and Gemma, that's me, and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew. The theme music is Vampiros Dancotech by Monica. Jack does the facts. Linda Moulton looks after our guests. And Sophie Shin provides the episode transcripts. The Letterboxd show is a tape deck production. If you are enjoying the show and have guest ideas, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to Jason for their Apple Podcast review. Quote... This is a great podcast for movie lovers. It's a great podcast to learn more about the world of movies. Keep up the great work, Gemma and Slim. How about that, Gemma? Aw, we will. And that's the show. Remember, try laughing, then whatever scares you will go away. Sayonara. I don't want to drink. He does. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You do. I don't. You don't. I do. You don't. I do. You don't. Listen, when I say I do, that means I do. This, this, this is a tape deck podcast. Ooh.